The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me this morning to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you'll find it on page 554 of a blue Purack Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, we are, we are coming this morning uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes to the most well-known part of the book of Ecclesiastes. But what's interesting is that this most well-known part of the book of Ecclesiastes is inside a book that actually people are not very familiar with at all. Even if these words sound familiar, most people are not very familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes. So, what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is the preachers, that's who is speaking throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher's accounting of how to make sense out of life. Now that's important for you, no matter what age you are, no matter what season of life you are in, you have a life, you are living it, does it make sense to you? How do you understand it? And what the preacher has done so far in the book of Ecclesiastes as we come to chapter 3 this morning, so far he has explored three different avenues to try to make sense of life. Wisdom, pleasure, and work. Wisdom, pleasure, and work to try and find meaning. And as he chases those three things to try to supply ultimate meaning to his life, he finds that they leave him empty at the end of the day and so, so often repeats the phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I can't make ultimate meaning of my life by my wisdom. I can't make ultimate meaning of life by my work by my toil, by my pleasure. So, in a really wonderful change of pace, we come to chapter 3, where having previously seen dead end after dead end, there is finally a solution in chapter 3 to how do I make sense of my life. Where do we go if wisdom doesn't supply the meaning, if pleasure doesn't supply enough satisfaction, and if work or vocation or some human quest, political, social, moral, doesn't supply our ultimate meaning? Where do we go? Ecclesiastes 3 tells us exactly where. So this is important, not just for those of you who claim the name of Jesus, who identify yourself as a Christian, but Ecclesiastes 3 is written to all people everywhere who need to figure out what life is for. So, asking God's blessing upon it is, is so necessary that we might understand it. Let's pray. Ask His blessing upon the Scriptures. O oh, Father, with Your Word open before us, we rejoice that, that we can be here. We rejoice that we can be together to have a copy in a, of Your Scriptures in a language that we can understand, in a place with freedom to do so. Lord, help us not to take this for granted. But let us now, Lord, give ourselves over to the serious consideration of your truth. And so, as your Spirit so gave these words to be recorded, Lord, write them on our hearts, upon our very souls, that we might be your people in sincere obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God from Ecclesiastes 3, uh, under the heading, A Time for Everything. We're reading the first 15 verses. This is the Word of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. 
a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Amen. Grass withers in the flower phase, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write its eternal truth on our hearts as this text even speaks of here and now. Well, as I said, uh, arguably the most famous portion of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, probably definitely the most famous poem in all the scriptures, and if you were born between 1946 and 1964, you were likely singing the words of the song in your head as we heard this to the tune of the bird's famous hit, Turn, Turn, Turn. Uh, It was uh, their rendition of a folk singer's uh, addition of three words to the end of A Time for Peace. Anyway, you're familiar with it. What you might not also be familiar with is another song that tries to make sense of life. Another song from the 60s, perhaps you might know it. Paul Simon asks the same types of questions trying to make sense of life. Paul Simon, one, maybe one of the greatest songwriters, through the corridors of sleep, past shadows dark and deep, My mind dances and leaps in confusion. I do not know what is real. I can't touch what I feel. And I hide behind the shield of my illusion. So I'll continue to pretend that my life will never end. And flowers never bend with the rainfall. What's your life for? Why do you exist? How do you make sense out of it? The poets, the songwriters, they'll take you on various journeys to try to explain the the what's, the why's, and the wherefore's, and they'll all lead you in various places. How do we make sense out of this life? Well, as we begin to try to think about that, you know, people love to use this catchphrase, that everything happens for a reason. It rolls off the tongue very easily, but we should ask, what is the reason? What is the reason 
that governs why things happen. Uh, why do people think that such and such a thing is supposed to happen? Uh, for different people, the governing realities of who or what destines our destinies is different. People have different ideas about what is governing these things. Whether it be astrological predictions by your zodiac sign or your fortune cookie. Whether it's the email forward that you didn't send on and therefore you assume that your life is cursed because you didn't send it to 10 people. What's interesting is that for most people in the world, I think most people believe in a concept of destiny but who believe that it is governed by an impersonal force. My zodiac sign, my fortune cookie, and the email forward rather than a personal being who is directing all things and giving purpose to all things. That is what we believe in the Christian faith. In the Christian faith, this is exactly what we believe, that God is the personal being providing purpose to our lives, and because God is not some distant and passive observer of our lives, we speak of His active involvement in all of our lives, and when we're talking about that, we're talking about a thing we call God's providence. God's providence, our shorter catechism says, is His most holy, wise, preserving and governing of all creatures and their actions. When Christians speak of destiny, we use the word providence, not random fate or chance. God cares for the world He made and everything in it by means of His providence. If it's helpful to you, remember that the word provide is in the word providence. Because by His providence, He provides. He cares for the things that He has made. Not just the creation, but your very life. By God's providence, He cares for your life. And that's the preacher's theme of the poem in chapter 3. That's what this poem is really about. In the first part, these first eight verses, the preacher is going to recount to you the reality that the events of our lives are outside of our personal control. The events of your life are outside of your personal control. We do not control the time that we weep and the time that we laugh because who in their right mind would choose the time to weep and the time to mourn and the time to die? The preacher here is pointing out the fact that the great events that characterize the stages of our lives between birth and death and everything in between are under the sovereign providence of Almighty God and therefore are out of our control. Now, the preacher has said something like this before and I want to point it out so that we can appreciate what he's doing in chapter 3. If you flip back to chapter 1, there was already a poem in the book of Ecclesiastes in this wisdom literature that loves to employ a poetic use to prove a point. There was an earlier poem in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. In Ecclesiastes 1, at verse 3, the question is asked, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. That was his earlier poem. And that verdict in verse 8 of chapter 1, 
all things are full of weariness is the conclusion that he makes as he thinks about the cycles of nature, the cycles of the created order, which are outside of our human control and turn and turn and turn in an unending cyclical pattern. The seasons, the waters, the winds are outside of our control. And where does all of this get the preacher? It brings him to a place of this wearisome vexation. Life doesn't make sense to me. And it feels like I'm on this gigantic hamster wheel. But then you get into chapter 3. And you have the same thing that's being presented. This reality about life and its occurrences going back to chapter 3 now, but there is a different feel. This description of a time to give birth, a time to die, to plant and uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal is again rehearsing realities that are outside of our control, but there is a very important difference between the poem of chapter 1 and the poem of chapter 3, and I want to make sure that we see it together. What's the difference? The difference is, back in chapter 1, preacher asked the question, what advantage does man have in all of his work that he does under the sun? And that's been a very important part of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? This perspective of life apart from God, life under the sun, a totally horizontal dimension that cares for nothing of the vertical and just sees me and my life and doesn't factor in God. My life under the sun is full of vexation. But here's the difference in chapter 3. Look again at verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event. Where? Under heaven. Big difference now. Big difference. What, is, what does this view of life mean in contrast? Life under heaven in the book of Ecclesiastes is the opposite. The opposite of life under the sun. Life under heaven is life considered with its widest possible perspective, taking in the perspective of God that factors in the vertical and keeps God in the equation. This is looking at life not just through the narrow scope of our own earthly horizons like life under the sun, but rather life under heaven keeps God in the picture and not only keeps Him in the picture, it factors in His sovereign providence over our lives. And, as a result of that, concludes that we have appointed times. Again, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. What this is teaching us, friends, is that our lives under heaven have appointed times. Our lives don't just happen. Our lives are not the result of a random sequence of impersonal, natural operations or consequences of some bang somewhere. Our lives and the details of our lives are the result of the purposeful and personal direction of the living God who governs all things according to His appointed times. Notice the repetition of the word time. Once in the introduction of verse 1, and then 28 times. It's obviously the emphasis of this poem, isn't it? Time. 28 times here in 14 different pairs of realities. This poem encapsulates all of life, and it features this back and forth, tick and talk of time. 
the motion of our very human lives between the time to be born and the time to die of verse 2, which are the bookend events of our earthly lives, encapsulates all these things. A time for this, a time for that, a back and forth, a tick and talk, the passing of time. And it's busy, isn't it? There's a lot that's going on here. There's so much planting and plucking and mourning and dancing and breaking down and building up and so on and so on. These are 14 pairs of opposite emotions or experiences that have no discernible order and a seemingly intentional randomness which is supposed to cause us to reflect of an apparent randomness in the face of a definite order. Okay? We find that as the living Word of God, this poem is actually reading us as we read it. It's telling you the reality of your very life. It tells you about all the major decisions in your life that are bookended again by your birth and your death. Do you notice things in here that you identify with? Your personal experiences are copied and pasted into the descriptions of healing weeping, dancing, refraining from embracing. You can almost perhaps picture scenes of your life being played out by these descriptions of Ecclesiastes 3. And it's intended to communicate to you, dear friends, that, that my life and your life is ordered and not random that the circumstances of your life, the details that are generally described here in these first eight verses are ordered by God's appointed time. Again, look back over them and just let it sink in. God is over your life. He is in control. So hear me very clearly. In the Christian faith, it is not that everything happens for a reason. It is that everything happens for God's reason. Let's say it without shame or embarrassment. But then, I mean, what do we do with it? Thankfully, the preacher explains himself in verses 9 through 15. He, he outlines in this beautiful poetic sense the reality of God's providence, but then what are we supposed to do with it? What follows in verses 9 through 15 is his interpretation of the poem. If verses 1 through 8 summarize what we do in time, the question comes in verse 9, naturally following, asking, verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Or in other words, what's all this for? What are our times and seasons for? Why do we need to know this? Why is this important? Why, what, what gain is there in this? And then he goes on in verses 10 through 15 to do two things. First of all, he explains what God is doing with time. And then says, as a result, what we should do by understanding this. The preacher wants us to understand, first of all, what God is doing with time, and then as a result, what we should do because of what we see about what God does with time. So, the purpose of seeing from this heavenly perspective, the purpose of lifting our eyes beyond simply life under the sun to life under heaven, 
embracing the reality of the tick and talk of time on earth is so that we would see and believe the truth of God's providence. The preacher wants us to embrace this. And what he's doing is here, he is working out the implications of God's providence. God's providence, he is explaining, is for your comfort. It is for your benefit. Look how he says it in verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Again, calling back to this reference of order, times and seasons, and in every time and season, He has made everything beautiful. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. Preacher is here explaining what God does by His providence. This is what God has done. He has made and fashioned your life, your friends, your family, where you live, the occurrences of your life in all spectrum of emotions. And I say that very clearly because it's easy to embrace the joyful realities, right? A time to laugh and a time to dance, but what about the time to weep and a time to mourn? Is God in that as well? The inescapable answer is yes, He is. He has made everything beautiful in its time. How often have you experienced something when in the moment you couldn't fathom for the life of you what good could possibly come of this? Maybe a year, five years, a decade, 50 years, I don't know, later. You get a sense of perspective that the preacher wants you to have. Viewing life not just under the sun, but under heaven. God knows what He is doing even when we don't understand it. He has put eternity into the heart of man. Why? As He says in verse 11, so that He, that is man, humankind, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That is, I think, encapsulating the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. God has put eternity into the heart of man so that we want to figure out what is all of life for. The desire to figure out is what he means when he says find out. Yet so that he cannot find out, figure out by effort of study, by chasing every road, trying to find meaning in life. The Bible tells us that the desire to figure out life is met with the frustrated inability to do so if we're trying to explain life apart from God. That's what that means. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. If you want to make sense of your life and you only think of it as under the sun, you'll never figure it out. It is only by viewing life under heaven that life makes sense. And the reason why this is being expounded here is, again, because the preacher has already said, what about this road? What about that road? No, no, no. Dead end after dead end. It's only here so that we would finally embrace the fact that I can't define my own life. I am not the captain of my own soul. I must submit in humility to a God who reigns in heaven. You and I need to be reminded of that all of the time. 
all of the time so that we would submit in humility. Now, just be sensible at this for a minute, okay? Just be sensible. You know that this is true, okay? And I'm thinking also of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. They know it's true too. Why? Because the Bible says God has put eternity into their hearts. The Apostle Paul interprets that idea in Romans chapter 1. It's not that they don't believe it. It's just that they're trying to deny it. Listen, be sensible about this reality. How is there enough fluid in my eyeballs to keep them from sticking shut so that when I wake up in the morning I can see again? Now there's a medical explanation for that, but how does the body produce that? How is there enough fluid in my joints to keep me from being an arthritic basket case? Okay? Just be sensible about this. Okay? And modern humanity in their pride says, I am in charge of this. And the Bible says, no, you're not. And you'll be miserable until you realize that that's true. This illusion, the height of arrogance to say, I am the captain of my own soul. The reason why this is being instructed here in this way is because God's providence is supposed to be that which first humbles us to kind of quit, you know, insisting that we are in charge, but then secondly, to be the truth that provides for us safety and security. What Ecclesiastes 3 says here, God's sovereign providence over our lives is a truth that should be for us like a a warm blanket, right, that covers you up and comforts you, that consoles the realities that this life is not random and purposeless. It is not some harsh constraint. So hear these words from Isaiah 55 as God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if in sinful arrogance you need to read those words and experience a sledgehammer, that's good. But for the Christian believer, that is not a sledgehammer. It's comfort. Does God know what He's doing in your life? Yes. Are His ways higher than your ways and His thoughts higher than your thoughts? Yes. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Do you remember how the Lord Jesus applies this? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, in the section about anxiety and fear and wringing hands, this is the truth that is intended to quiet our hearts. You are of more value than the sparrows. God cares for you by His providence. Your Father will care for you still. That's what this is teaching. And it is intended to bring us to a couple responses. God's great providence... And the eternity that He has placed in our hearts to recognize it is supposed to produce a couple of things in us. And the first one is to rejoice. See it in verse 12? I perceived that there is nothing better for them. Meaning, there is nothing better for you and I than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Your life is a gift to you that God has given you and God intends that you take that life in your ordinary living and enjoy it. 
and rejoice that God has been so kind to you. That might seem overly simplistic, but it is only possible to those who really embrace what this text is teaching of God's sovereign providence, the means of rejoicing and the means of being thankful and the means of just taking what God has given and enjoying it with pleasure is only possible because you know where it came from. You know to whom to direct gratitude to. God says rejoice. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your beautiful life. Your life is a beautiful thing. It's not a mistake. The events and occurrences of your life are not random happenstance. It's God's purpose and your life is beautiful. That's one response. But the other response is, comes out in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it, meaning it's fixed and has a purpose. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before Him that which is already has been and that which is to be has already been. Meaning, God knows what He's doing. And in light of this sovereign God of comforting providence, we are to fear the Lord. This is a concept that has for some reason gone far away from modern notions of Christianity. But it is one of the most basic concepts in all the Bible. What does it mean to fear the Lord? I remember growing up hearing that and having no clue, no clue what that means. Am I supposed to be scared of God? Is that what that means? To fear the Lord is to recognize that God is God. To fear the Lord in this sense is to recognize that He is the one who governs our times and seasons. Rather than reducing Him to something that He isn't so we feel better, to fear the Lord is to acknowledge Him to be who He says He is and to believe that which He teaches is true. Consequently, that's why it's important for a children to have a catechism question about hell. Because there's something in us that works up that says, we probably shouldn't talk about that. We should probably talk about something else. We should probably be something else. But God is a righteous judge. And God is the sovereign God of providence. That's just one illustration. But the point is to allow God to be God by recognizing it through our worship in humble reverence and fear, saying, Lord, you are God and we are not. And if we do, we will have that appropriate fear of the Lord, which is a trembling trust. That's what it means. A trembling trust. Now here's what he says. On the whole, the big picture here, if you want to try to make sense of your life in the days and seasons and times and events of your life without God, you can try, but you'll end up vexed, full of vanity, and frustrated. And it is possible to make sense of your life because of who God is. And we can know this God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, that might be one of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. Let's believe it with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank You that in Your kindness and grace You reveal Yourself to us. Lord, as we pause to reflect over the days and seasons of our lives, we see the hand of Your providence guiding us, leading us in ways we could have never imagined or understood. And yet, 
Lord, you do all things for their appointed purpose and to the end that you might receive glory and honor. And so, Father, receive that from us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who has so ransomed and redeemed our lives from sin that we might be able to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We rejoice that you are our God. We do not tremble away from you. We tremble in faithful reverence in your presence, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.